is correct. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing one of the longest-running shows in television history, The Simpsons. Launched as a ride-along feature of The Tracy Ullman Show in 1987, The Simpsons debuted as a primetime, half-hour animated comedy in December 1989. Creator Matt Groening probably didn't think he was helping to launch a show that would redefine American television and comedy, as well as make a substantial impact on American culture itself. But some 31 seasons later, The Simpsons has become the longest-running primetime TV show in history, both in terms of number of seasons and number of episodes. For the three or four people on Earth who haven't seen the show, The Simpsons chronicles the endless adventures and misadventures of the Simpson family, led by idiotic layabout Homer, the moral compass Marge, hooligan in training Bart, and progressive genius Lisa. There's a baby in there somewhere. Uh, and it's also supported by a cast of hundreds of characters representing the various denizens of the town of Springfield. Countless celebrity cameos have also dotted the show as it has lampooned virtually every aspect of modern American society, ranging from thoughtless commercialism to shiftless work ethics to irreverence for all authority to the dangers of moralizing and accompanied with a very heavy dollop throughout of absurdist humor. The Simpsons has launched endless catchphrases, has produced entire nation's worth of GDP and merchandising, produced a movie that grossed half a billion, and pretty much has become an unavoidable force in world culture. Everyone who has access to his TV has either seen The Simpsons or knows somebody who has. The love for the show has grown so deeply that a few years ago, when military tensions arose in the Korean Peninsula, one of the first questions people had on social media was whether or not the crisis would endanger the animation studio in South Korea that drew The Simpsons. It was a moment of such misplaced priorities that Groening himself must have sat back, steepled his fingers, and recited a classic line for evil industrious Monty Burns. Yeah. This is one of those shows that can't be discussed in its entirety. Like other long-running shows, its context changes and shifts over the years, and those who love it often have their own portion of the show when their enthusiasm was at its highest. For a lot of people, that's seasons four through nine, when the show was at what many people thought was its peak, or its golden age. But for a show to slip from sublime awesomeness to being dependably good or merely okay is a kind of survivable fall no other show has survived quite like this one. It's been around for 31 years. Only thing keeping it around for another 31 is maybe when the voice actors all decide that 62 seasons of anything is too much of a good thing. With me today is Reinhard Wolfcastle stunt double, Chris Crenshaw. Howdy, folks. Crested the Clown talent coordinator, Tom Hespos. Hi, everybody. <laughs> and Mayor Quimby's chief of staff, Joe Pace. I, uh, I uh, hope you all have a wonderful show. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think we're going to go in this show today, we're going to do our, our moments of truth in chronological order, since we're all pulling from a particular episode that we love in the show. So Chris, uh, I know you've got the earliest episode, so why don't you kick us off? What is your moment of truth in The Simpsons? My moment of truth is uh, Marge versus the Monorail, season four, episode 12. The uh, chalkboard gag was, I will not eat things for money. <laughs> it's not my favorite episode by any means, but for me, this is the moment where The Simpsons sort of blossomed into its final form, you know, its, its final evolution, to put it in Pokemon terms. It, it has been static ever since in the sense that nothing ever really changes in Springfield, of course. The town is now the center of the show. You know, it's, it's not just about Bart or even about Homer, although it's sort of about Homer because he does get to be the hero for once. You see the whole town interacting. Uh, there is a fantastic musical number featuring the immortal phil hartman and 
a classic uh, celebrity cameo in Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> it's it's so just good. it's so it's it's a, it's a really classic solid episode, and and for me, it's it's where everything crystallized finally, and and from that point forward until the time I stopped watching it, which probably was maybe season or stopped watching it regularly, it was probably about season 10, 11, or 12. The Simpsons was itself really identifiable in a way that, say, the, the first season isn't. In, in the first season especially, they're establishing the characters in this family. They're kind of getting into this kind of wacky family dynamic, like every, like every other sitcom. But no other sitcom so dwells on where the sitcom is is set. Usually it's in some, you know, ersatz version of a regular city but i mean springfield really took on a life of its own and i think by the time you get to the the fourth season so many side characters and kind of recurring bit players have come in enough time that you get a sense of you know springfield as a place it's defined by its people there's been this long question of like well where is springfield in 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 america it doesn't really matter because springfield isn't its place it's the people that are in it you know and and you get you really get a sense of that so you know when you have a moment where they're all you know <laughs> they're all coming together as this unruly mob which the show lampoons the notion of the mob all the time like springfield is the most persistent mob in american history like like you really you get a sense of what this what the show is really starting to be all about in this particular episode bill there's a the opening scene uh, for the monorail you know with the, the local celebrities all showing up to ride lurleen lumpkin who appeared in colonel homer Homer's right. brief, uh, she was the, the object of Homer's brief uh, <laughs> time as a country and Western music manager, makes an appearance in this episode, but her, her character is completely changed. She's, she's like, she's got like a torn shirt and she's yeah. a drunk and, and her voice is different. That callback culture that the Simpson has yeah. is, you know, it's, it's really starting to appear at this point. And I just think it's really I, it's really it was really cool to go back and watch it again in the context of all of those seasons since yeah. you know when when I was watching it I couldn't have told you you know this is season four episode 12 even though I watched every week in fact I I, I watched the Simpsons when we were in college I was the manager of the student restaurant and uh, every Thursday was was payroll night and so we would close at seven everybody would be out the door at 7 30 and I'd, I'd go sit at the computer and and do the Lotus one two three spreadsheet for all the time cards and whatnot and then I would uh, take the, the last bit of work up to the bar turn on the television to the Simpsons and pour myself a beer and that was my Thursday night for eh, three years <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, something, there's something deeply Bunch mad you. that you, you there's something deeply mad about how you took your work to the bar to drink while watching beer and work but mostly but beer <laughs> i couldn't have told you that this you know was a particularly early or late episode you know yeah. without seeing it on a on a browsing menu or, or maybe on a dvd menu yeah which I haven't seen one of those in a while. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> this exercise contextualized it in a way that I it, it made it pretty special to me. I, I do I do love this episode. To your point, I couldn't have told you like what season they're in, but this is right around the time when The Simpsons started becoming TV that I dared not miss. Right, like like every episode because I knew it was going to be so freaking funny, and it was going to be like the call out culture was starting to really come out. the The pop culture references started getting just savage. I mean, they were just so fantastic. There's a great nine hundred two one zero reference to this one when the celebrities are coming to go to the monorail ribbon cutting, 
and they mentioned this guy's obviously standing for Luke Perry, and he's like, oh, he's showing the 902-0, and he's 34 years old, and he smiles, and all these, like, wrinkles and crow's yeah. feet just explode across his face. <laughs> like, like a Delta scene from orbit. <laughs> like, okay. Well, you know, one, of the, one of the things we've talked about, you know, when we talked about uh, Monty Python or Saturday Night Live, we've talked about how the best comedy pulls no punches anywhere. It doesn't aim just in one direction. It's not solely up or down or set. It pillories anything within reach. And The Simpsons falls into that same category that it, it is um, absolutely fearless and absolutely universal in its satirical target, oh, yeah. uh, target choices. Yeah, well, the writer for this episode, who I'm probably gonna get his name wrong, I believe it's John Swartzwelder, he was probably the most prolific writer of the Simpsons. He actually, he wrote, he had like, he wrote like from this weird location. Like he has a whole backstory to his writing story. The story I heard is that he used to write like in a diner and they were demolishing yeah. the diner. So he actually bought the booth he would yeah, write he in. Brought it home. And yeah. brought it home. And had the exact <laughs> dining diner booth that he could sit there. I put believe in and, and write he in. wrote the episode that I picked too. I believe he wrote the episode I picked as well. But you know, he's funny because he's a, he's a guy, he's like a staunch libertarian, right? And he's the kind of guy that, he makes a lot of political jokes in this movie. I mean, this show, but he jabs at either side. It's like a knife fight in the dark. He will, anybody is in range. He'll just go after him. And, and I've always kind of enjoyed that, how the show kind of shoots in all directions in terms of, you know, who it's going to choose to lampoon. It'll often, it'll make a joke at one thing and then very quickly turn right around and make a joke at its social counterpart and immediately counterbalance itself in the moment, you know? And it just, it does that with such sublime skill and does it throughout the show. To, to Chris's point about the show and how the, the evolution of the program came to be that the, the character really was the town. And, you know, the question, where is Springfield? It's everywhere, right? I mean, every town is Springfield. Exactly. We've talked a little bit offline about how, you know, the show started and it was about Bart. It was essentially an updated version of Dennis the Menace. You've got this yeah. smart mouth kid writing at the chalkboard and he's, he's you know, causing trouble. But very quickly, the show pivots, really even during the course of the first season, pivots away from that because that mine of comedy is a, a limited vein and moves towards Homer, where there's a much more rich load of, of ore to mm -hmm. be found with, with the Homer character. But by season four, to Chris's point, it's moved even beyond that to the universe that's there. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's Homer's interactions with, or these on their own, this vast cast of characters who millions of individuals, it feels like every you know, recognizable uh, possible character. And they're all so different. And yet, at the same time, they're so able to be forged into that mob that you talk about. You know, uh, the first Chinese nationalist leader, Sun Yat-sen, said that the Chinese people are a sheet of loose sand. You tip it one way and they all go to... And that's Springfield. You tip it one way and they all go in that direction as yeah, a stampede. Yeah. And then they yeah. turn around and go the other way. <laughs> so the town itself, the town itself is a, is a character in that yeah. it can be moved. It has reactions. It yeah. has passions. It has... And once they're happy, they're all happy. If they're sad, they're yeah. all sad. It, it, it's, yeah. it's really pitch works and torches and yeah, exactly. <laughs> I used to watch religiously in college too, and like it became such like a routine that I started you know, watching in my fraternity house and you know the big communal TV room, and people would just come in and like you got so tired of people who were like two minutes late to the episode asking what, you, what do you write on the, you know, on the board and what was the couch gag? Yeah. 
when people would come in late, you would just say it because you knew they were going to ask. <laughs> Write it on the board. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think everybody, you know, like appreciated that, you know, that difference yeah. each and every time an episode ran, they, they had all those gags and the yeah. uh, Lisa's solo was different every time. I mean, that's a yeah. tough thing to pull off. <laughs> for, for this long? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, I think that's something else that really has to be said. I mean, I mean, like, I did a lot of reading about this, the history of the show before we did this episode. And it's interesting how a lot of people feel that the show peaked somewhere around eighth, ninth, or 10th season. And after that, it was kind of this long, long, slow slide into just okay television, right? And this, this podcast is not here to talk about things we don't like. It's here to talk about things we do like. But you can't talk about The Simpsons without acknowledging that a lot of people feel this way. The thing is, the show's still working to some degree. <laughs> yeah. 30, 31 season later. I mean, it's just the, the ability to keep itself yeah. going is just a thing of legend. It's just, it's just, even if you don't like that much, you have to respect just how much it's been able to perpetuate itself. I haven't seen a Simpsons episodes in 20 years. And yet I feel like I loved this show for more than a decade. Yeah, it's, right? <laughs> well, it feels well, like such a part of your life, doesn't it? It, yeah, well, I, well, I think that the thing with The Simpsons is that it, and I think certainly, like episodes like Marjorie versus the Monorail, for me, one of the things, one of the things it really does is that <laughs> when it's not making fun of Homer or making fun of some particular thing, it's making fun of American society in general. And I've always kind of wondered how much. I mean, I know the show is globally popular, but I'm, I always kind of wonder, like, how much do non-American audiences really get the joke? Because this is such a broadside against American culture in particular. You know, you see yourself somewhere in The Simpsons very, very much. You see the town you live in. You see the place where you work. You see the things you do for fun. Somewhere, they're all here in The Simpsons drawn in ridiculous ways. And so you don't have to watch a show for long for it to feel like it's part of your background. And it's like, as long as The Simpsons has been on, you kind of feel like you've been watching it because in a way, you've been living it. And I think that's kind of some one of the weird things about this show that makes it strangely relevant to everybody kind of forever. At least, at least it does for me. That's how I see it. I, I agree. But then, you know, you, you could just get right back into it. I mean, it's not like they're going to introduce characters. I mean, you know, if there'll be one-off characters that they introduce, it won't yeah. be, you know, anybody new. You yeah. still have the same core. It's yeah. not like something like drastically changed. It's like, you know, a comic <laughs> book that you could pick back up. Yeah. yeah. There's no narrative, right? There's no narrative arc. Right. Not really. I asked the question in our discussions beforehand. How many times do you think since 1989 human beings have said the word dope? <laughs> I, I mean, it, it's obviously incalculable, yeah, literally, but figuratively too. I, like, how, I, I mean, I've said it, I mean, countless thousand like, like times. Scientific notation, Chris. You'd have to yeah. count it in scientific <laughs> notation. And, and, and there's just so many lines, you know. I call the big one bitey. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I mean, I've said that, I don't know how many times, I mean, dozens, dozens. Homer, and that's just you've like got a, it set on whore. Yeah. Might <laughs> <laughs> be mean, my favorite line of television ever uttered, by the way, is when Homer makes the makeup gun and Martin slaps it away and he hits the wall. It's just this like weird paint outline of Marge's face. Like, Homer, you've got it set on whore. It's like, oh, right. <laughs> like, why would you set it to that? <laughs> there's, and they're so versatile. They're so versatile. There's one where Ralph Wiggum, God love him is sitting on the bus and oh. and uh he laughs and says i'm in I'm danger, in danger. <laughs> but like the the, yeah. the best part is the subtitles it says chuckles i'm in danger 
and it's that's been used every single time like whenever like you've gotten into a fight with your wife you know and, and one of my all-time favorite memes if you will is like when you've you know, having a text discussion with your wife, and you see the three bubbles come up and go down, and three bubbles come up and go down. And three <laughs> bubbles, yeah, <laughs> I'm in I'm danger. <laughs> She's revising what she's saying. This is yeah. not going to go well. Yeah. And it's that, that, somebody that, like, gets somebody something in their eye. You know, the goggles they do nothing. Like, <laughs> get to the chopper. Get to the chopper. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. So it's so this good. could so readily you devolve. Could go yeah. days, you could do an going. episode where you literally went on for days, just like talking about Simpsons. Lines. Yeah, I caught my son. He he actually he he actually mentioned like you no know, the goggles they do nothing and had never seen an episode of The Simpsons. Didn't even know what he was quoting. He just it's knew part it of your there. family vernacular. It, it, yeah, I mean they've not just so my family vernacular. Traveled well outside, but yeah, he may not have gotten it from me. That's his thing. It's like oh, to, to, your, to your point, Chris, about like how many times have people said the word dough. I mean, it's just I'm sorry, dough. <laughs> you know, it's part of the landscape, and that's that's one of the weird <laughs> things about the show is that it started off as a subversive kind of comedy and somewhere along the line like if you're too subversive you end up becoming what you meant to subvert right and so and it's we've we've kind of gone there with this but you know if we can just go back for, for a second you talked about one-off characters in this episode i gotta say one of my i love the character of landley the the con man oh yeah um, who again you said the immortal phil hartman we mentioned him in the saturday night live episode last last time around for all the great stuff he did in SNL, I mean, I think where Hartman's greatest work was done was perhaps in The Simpsons. Where Without just, a doubt, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. I mean, as, as Lionel Hutz, <laughs> you know, the least trustworthy attorney in the world, you know, as well as, as, well as so many other characters. I just loved – and this is also like the deep cultural references how – I love how this movie and his character, he referenced um, the musical The Music Man, which is like yep. from 1957 play and a 1962 movie that I'm sure most people – probably didn't know what the heck it was when it when, when they referenced it but they didn't care like this show would reference they would make references that made sense to them and if you got it great if not move on you know and it's like a and, funny version of dennis miller yeah and, yeah and it's like <laughs> and, and like and the whole the whole monorail song you know monorail monorail, monorail. <laughs> first of all that song believe it or not, that song actually was nominated for a primetime emmy yeah well that's <laughs> original, original song right but it's a genius mashup of two songs from the music man which is you got trouble right you got trouble right here right here in river city you know and about you know this the guy gins up this problem these people don't really have to give them a solution they don't really need and then the song 76 trombones where he basically starts singing the song about how great it's going to be for the town to have this wonderful marching band he fills their head with this notion of this gleaming marching band this little tiny town in iowa that does not need a marching band but he sells them instantly on this notion of it and that monorail song distills that amazingly in about 45 seconds yeah it's no time <laughs> it's, it's no time at all and the lyrics are so insane like he's referencing like chief wiggums pulls his pudding ring off and it's like it's like what what is it it's it's so great not on your life my hindu friend <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's so it's so bonkers and the other, the other moment he does in this in this episode that i absolutely adore is he's doing like his goodwill tour around town where he's just getting everybody worked up right and there's a couple holdouts like marge is like Obviously not sold on the I don't know. You know, she's a holdout. But you also, you, you expect Lisa, who's just the smartest person in Springfield. Surely she sees through this guy. And there's this, 
hilarious moment where he he comes to the classroom to kind of snowball all these kids and they're all like just idiots they don't get it and so she answers she asks him this really good question like you know why do we need a mono like a mass transit system for a small town with a centralized population you know it doesn't make any sense he's like little girl that's the best question i've been I've been asked all along and you know what it's a great answer but only you and i would get it that includes your teacher and she's like <laughs> and then he moves on and doesn't answer and like she's snowed just as easily as everybody else is <laughs> <laughs> such a great blinking you miss it but it's such a great moment and you're like oh man even lisa got hornswoggled it's so Flower good to get you everywhere yeah <laughs> but like it was you know we can't talk i don't think about this episode without talking about leonard nimoy having the, <laughs> the appearance that he has and the, the brilliance of in a lot of ways like south park would kind of do later you get these weird um, stunt cast uh one-off celebrity cameos right and they almost always hit and yeah. this is one that like Leonard Nimoy is so perfectly because he's, he's essentially himself, right? Like, I mean, he's yeah. uh, more or less himself. And at the end of it, you know, my work here is done. And he, and he beams out. And how many of us <laughs> wish that we could do that? <laughs> <laughs> but the great thing about Nimoy's turn in this is that, <laughs> first of all, Quimby, of course, like confuses him with the Star Wars character. So you just, you know, that's, he's like, do you even know who I am? <laughs> he's like, that's my bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so good. And then he's saying these things during the monorail crisis, right? Like it's it's careening around town, and he's saying these really erudite things, and people just don't want to hear him. Like, oh my god, whatever, you know? Or like, like he's essentially hey. narrating the civilization game while the monorail <laughs> yeah. was about to go off. The, yeah, the he's like, and you, I'm like, well, this one, well, like, Joe, I felt you in this one thing. He's like, he's at the bar, this guy going. You know, the doors on the Enterprise didn't open at all, really. It was just two stagehands by the side. They'd pull the doors open as you walked by. And the guys are like, yeah, whatever. Like, he doesn't want to hear Nimoy tell these, like, inside baseball stories of Star Trek. He's just too bored. Or, like, at the end, like, you know, Nimoy's like, ah, at last. He says something really poetic about the whole, the whole crisis. And the guy next to him is like, does anybody want to switch seats? Like, he's done. <laughs> the symphony of life goes on. Yeah, exactly. It's like some unnamed Springfielding is like, can I get away from the smart guy who speaks some words I don't get? Like, I got to go. It's just, it's, it's so great. It's so, it's so fantastic. I love it. And it's also ended, by the way, with, you know, and that was the last folly Springfield ever did until they built the Popsicle skyscraper and the magnifying <laughs> glass and the escalator to nowhere. And just, you see people <laughs> falling off. Because ah, ah, of the credits. Ah. <laughs> the show had a great way of, they would drop the credit screen in and then have one last joke play over the credit screen just to let you know, like, the show's over, but the, the, the Springfield is not. You know, I, I love that. The best one of all time. Uh, what was the episode? It was the one with like the um, the steel workers where they had the gay rave in the factory. <laughs> and at the end, you got, got this one. at the end, it says dedicated to the United Steelworkers of America. Keep reaching for that rainbow. I have never laughed so hard in my entire life as I laughed. Uh, you know, no, I, 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 I personally think it, it's the helicopter. <laughs> Fox News, not racist, but number one with racist. <laughs> yeah, but number one with racist. Yeah. That is my favorite. What along that along the way is, is um is uh there's one of the episodes where they look into the future, and the Fox chopper is going by, and it's Fox Triple X. It's just fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so, Keep reaching for that. Chris is reaching for that rainbow. Yeah, right now. it's so good. It's so good. All right, so we're gonna move on to the next one. This is gonna be my moment of truth, which is actually from the same season just a couple episodes later it's from an episode called last exit to springfield it is it's probably my favorite episode of, of the show of all time i remember when i first saw it i just 
I remember I gyrated so wildly laughing, I almost punched my mom in the face. <laughs> Homer is, is he's the union representative for the nuclear power plant. And Burns decides that um, he's just tired of the union basically being a union. And he wants to get back all the concessions the union has gotten over the years, including their dental plan. So he takes it on himself to redraft the union deal so that there's no dental plan. And coincidentally, that's a time when it turns out Lisa needs braces. And so Homer, Homer is about to, you know, is about to go along with the fact that Burns is going to get the union to give up their dental plan for a free keg of beer at their meeting, right? So people just rush to the beer like, yeah, <laughs> and they can't even imagine what they need a dental plan for. And then Homer, obviously, he's like, no, 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 we need, we, I need the dental plan. So we're going we're gonna to fight back. And it turns into a strike. And so it's a strike of the dental plan. It's basically Homer at the head of this crazy mob and Burns and Smithers all by themselves trying to hold out against the mob. And it's just a hilarious episode that broadsides labor disputes. It broadsides the fat cats around a company. It's just hilarious. And I absolutely adore it. There's a bunch of moments in this, in this episode that I come back to and quote all the time, whether it's, you know, why must you return my office into a house of lies? <laughs> it was like this. this How often do you brush, Ralph? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. He's like torturing Ralph. Oh, a <laughs> oh, couple times a day. Why must you turn my office into a house of lies? <laughs> Come, Ralph, let me show you the big book of British smiles. <laughs> and like, it opens his tome and flashes through these increasingly wacky pictures of archetypically horrible English teeth. Ending, I'm in danger. Ending, yeah, yeah. Ending with the picture of Prince Charles by the way and that's what breaks Ralph yeah. like no no stop no please more. no more <laughs> it's, so, it's so funny <laughs> it's so good uh the other one is this is also the episode that really was the first time for me that it it really showcased like the serious transition of the show from a Bart-centric show to a Homer-centric show and in particular focused on Homer as a barely functioning human being, let alone a competent adult. Like his, his ADC reaches just astonishing levels. And we see it most in this one moment where, where uh, Lenny is talking about, you know, yeah, I can't believe we just, you know, we, all you had to do to get this beer is give up our dental plan. And there's this hilarious thing. You just hear, you just see Homer with this blank stare and just goes, dental plan. And here's, you know, his, his wife go, Lisa needs braces, dental plan. Lisa needs braces, dental plan. And, and it goes on like six times until finally Homer is, is broken out of the cycle because somebody drops a pencil in his butt crack. He's like, oh, <laughs> and then he pulls it out. And he's like, where was I? Dental plan. <laughs> it's like this like klaxon in his head. He just can't finally like, I need a dental plan. It's like, yeah, dummy, you do. But you know, it's, they, they ran this joke so long. Like they should have, they should have held it off after the first two or three times. But they just kept it going, and it's it's they do the Simpsons did this a couple of times. They had jokes that they knew were so good, they could run them past when they should not have been funny anymore, but somehow managed to make them keep being funny. Like that's a that's something that only the Simpsons ever managed to do skillfully, and they did it here. But it's just it's just really fantastic, and I love this episode so much. The other part of it that I really really adore is, uh, of course, as the as a strike wears on, Burns decides, well, it's time to get serious. We need to get him some strike breakers. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, Burns, give me some strike breakers, like the ones we had in the 30s. And so Burns gets them the strike breakers they had in the Smithers, 30s. Smithers, Smithers gets them. Yeah, 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 sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so he, uh, 
And so they're led by Abe Simpson, right? So Abe is going to go bust heads of his son's own strike. (laughs) And the guys are showing up. Not only are these strike breakers all like 80 years old, they're wearing apparently the same uniforms they had back in the 30s. Like they're all like tattered around the collar and all and all that and it's like we can't bust heads like we used to but we have our methods now we basically tell boring stories that don't go anywhere like the time i took the ferry over to morganville which is what they called shelby and and the story just goes on <laughs> it's been like a minute where this nonsensical nowhere story you see burns like hand on his head like i just want to die like <laughs> like he's sick he sick his own strike breakers against him and it's just like that that scene is is I try to quote that as much as I can, especially like to, to my kids when I want to bore the crap out of them or something, you know. And I just I just recite it against them. It's so it was just so well done, and it's like it captured the absurdity of the humor, especially at that time of the show, so so perfectly. We talked about the pivoting right away from Bart to Homer to the entire community. I think it's hard to to look at the roster of community members without talking about. Charles Montgomery Burns and being in the first rank. I mean, the guy is uh, among all of those that are out there, the Moes and the Barneys and the Wiggums and everybody else. Burns to me is the moral, the, if the Simpsons are the focus, he's the directrix, right? Like, I mean, he, he is the other pole. He is the other, the other moral pole, right? And, and he is the, the other center of gravity of the show from the Simpsons. And increasingly, the show realized what an absolute goldmine of humor this guy is. And release the heavens. <laughs> release the heavens. The fact that he meets Homer virtually every episode and at the same time can never remember him. He's just never one knows of his who drones. he is. Yeah. He's one of his drones from Sector G. <laughs> and, and, and it's just, I mean, yeah. Burns is the perfect depiction of the 1% of the plutocrat. And, and the show. Yeah. You know, wastes no opportunity to uh, write a lot of humor about that, but also makes him almost a sympathetic character in doing so. That's brilliant to do. That. They took Mr. Yeah. Potter. They took Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> made him, made him a, an, an endearing creature. You know, that's a level of brilliance in writing. It, it, they stuck him. To. They stuck him with such shiftless and worthless employees. <laughs> That, that, right? that, that you're, you're like well at least at least let, at least hear what the guy has to say he's you know he's just <laughs> trying to give them energy to their community I mean, he's trying to make a <laughs> yeah. nuclear power plant run for god's you know, sake i mean let's not saying. forget that burns hired them i mean he's the guy who decided <laughs> to staff his plant with this collection the of idiots ones I could get. yeah yeah um the, the one thing i like about this episode is that a character like burns is best without much of a backstory but we get a hint of his origin here where it, there's a flashback to 1909 when he's like, no, it wasn't always like this. And he remembers the good old days before unions. And this is where he accompanies his father to the Springfield atom smashing plant. And there are these guys smashing out of the sledgehammers, right? Against anvils. He's like, you there, put your backs into it. And he grabs this guy. He's like, you, turn out your pockets. And he gets a magnifying glass and goes, atoms, one, two, three, four, five, six atoms. And it has him taken away. It's like, what? It's like he gets for he's he's angry at the guy for for pocketing free atoms. Like atoms are everywhere. It's just it's like such free a radical. Yeah, it's just such a great. It's 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 so overdrawn. I just I just adore it. It's, it's to wonderful. support Joe's point, Burns also has my favorite Simpsons musical moment with "See My Best." Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> oh God, I love that song. Yeah, it's a uh, sung to the song to the tune of uh, "Be Be Our Guest." Be our guest, right? from Beauty and the Beast, and it's just the best. Well, and they drop in this 
veiled homoeroticism between him and Smithers that just never ceases to slay. <laughs> and it just... Sometimes not always so veiled, yeah. <laughs> One of the things about the, the, the Simpsons that's brilliant is that it's almost like the Marvel Universe, if you will. Right? Like they take it and they just keep layering on here and here and they say, oh, here's this character, let's tell their story and layer on that and layer on that. And then every single new episode, we're going to wipe the slate entirely clean, except you know a little bit more about these characters. And yeah. So while there is no over, there is no narrative arc, there is just a deepening of the sandbox. That yeah. continues. I, I think there have been at least four episodes where Homer and Marge is, are dating, and it's a completely different story every time. And it's, <laughs> yeah. and it's a different time. Like, yeah. you know, in the, in the earlier ones, they were, they were in the 70s or early 80s. Uh, you know, judging by hair and music that was playing, and and then later on, now they're in the '90s, they're in the grunge. It, it's interesting. They, they just sort <laughs> yeah. of it's like it is like comic books, like you say, because they it's like they're constantly retconning. Yeah, or it's yeah. like updating it. Whereas originally, you know, Iron Man was in Vietnam, and then in the movie, in the comics, yeah. he was in Vietnam, and in the movie, it's happening in Afghanistan. They just continue to update yeah. the, the context. I, I'm not so sure there's much of a conscious effort behind it because I, I keep wondering. Like, you see things like Mo Sislak, who may be one of my favorite side characters, and he's just this like nah. <laughs> endlessly lonely, cruel guy. He's just like you know, he's just the sounds inside of his head are nothing you want to hear. He's just this tortured dude, just this misanthrope of the first order. Every time you learn some other detail about him, it's hideous and pathetic, right? Like the time that one time, the, like the phone rings at the bar, he's sitting there, he's eating a he's eating a bowl of cereal and the cereal is penicillin O's. And it's just referencing like, he's apparently got every sexual disease known to mankind, right? But like, he's eating them and they don't explain it. Like, it's every detail. None of them coordinate with each other. Like they just they just lump in all these details, and you're like, they leave it to you to sort it all out. And they don't have to have continuity. They just a lot of them just sort of pick up funny details like barnacles because the detail was a joke that worked at the time. And they're like, that it worked for that episode. Moving along, we'll revisit it if we feel like it, but we don't have to. And so collectively, these characters become astonishing because there's so much to them. They were never fettered by the notion of do to fit the other jokes. It doesn't matter. We well, don't like care. The moments come and go. I was born a snake handler, and I'll die a snake handler. <laughs> well, like, you know, moments as simple as, like, when uh, when groundskeeper Willie tears his shirt apart and he's jacked to shreds underneath it. He's like, so it's ripped. Like, and they never, ever, that's it. That's the only time they reference that. And it's like, what? It's as if they say, like, well, all Scottish people are just have, like, just amazing, like, eight packs, you know? <laughs> just all muscles, you know? Oh, it's, so, it's so ah, dry it eyes. <laughs> The other thing I, I bet this episode is that there's some great like little bits of total absurdity in it, which I thought was hilarious. Like, like at one point, Burns decides, all right, he's going to get his revenge on the town, right? He just shuts off all power. And of course, there's still a power news ticker, like total blackout in Springfield. It's like, what is that about, right? Or, uh, or he, he's, he's giving Homer a tour of, of like his underground bunker and he come to, there's a room with like, you know, a thousand monkeys at typewriters trying to, that trying to prove that aphorism, like, you know, with enough time, enough monkeys, enough typewriters, you know, one of them will type out Hamlet. And he takes a sheet from what what, what they've been working on and says, monkey, <laughs> monkey's got a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. Like he's like a, like a newspaper stringer. Like he's been working all day. He's like, it was the best of times. It was the blurst of times, you stupid monkey. <laughs> it's like, he can't, he can't appreciate how close it came. Instead, he's just like haranguing the monkey. And the monkey is like, oh man, another first draft, you know? It was, just, it, was just, it was just it was just so funny it was, it was so fantastic um ah oh, it's just the best 
I love Lisa's uh, protest song. It's actually quite powerful. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Song, it's brilliant. It's great. They have the plan, but we have, we have the, the power. power. <laughs> oh, it's it's fantastic. This was from the, the time in the show when Lisa was obviously like she was a gag, but but you kind of always get the sense that like it's okay to laugh at Lisa and the fact that she's a smart kid in a dumb town because you have this certainty that one day she will get out of that dumb town and she will achieve greatness and she will do all the things that nobody else in Springfield can ever do, right? Kind of the big assumption with, with Lisa. In later seasons, they kind of seem to forget that and they just sort of enjoy just you know putting the boot on Lisa and just laughing at her expense. And it's almost like the show sort of started, took a more Nelson-esque approach at Lisa and just pointed and went, ha ha! In these early seasons, these early episodes, I think she sings that protest song and nobody's like, shut up, kid, get out of here. They actually listen to her. Like she actually leads a progressive labor leaning protest song and people stop and listen to her. Whereas like past season 10 or so, that gag would never have played, right? She would have tried that. And then somebody would have like thrown a can at her or just been like, they wouldn't have somebody to make her feel like an idiot. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked. I feel like with Lisa, the, what they're mocking about her generally is her self-righteousness. Because she is. She's a, she is a know-it-all and a busybody. She's always right, <laughs> pretty much. But, but nobody likes that person. And, and so, I don't know. I don't mind it so much. <laughs> Lisa is the blue check on Twitter, right? I mean, Lisa yeah, is woke. Yeah, yeah. Lisa, Lisa is woke Twitter. And it's so, <laughs> there's, like, there's, a, there's a rectitude, but at the same time, it's like, oh, would you please just get off my back and let us have fun for a second? Like, that's a funny joke. I'm sorry that it, like, offended earthworms. You know what I mean? Like, so there, there is an aspect of that to Lisa, that, that self-righteousness that's just, yeah, 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 we know, we know. God, just give us a second. <laughs> and so there is a component of that to it. Right, so let, let's move on to the next one, which this would actually be, Joe, this would be your moment of truth, which uh, comes uh, just a couple seasons later, actually. You want you want to walk us through it? Yeah, it comes in season six. It's Homer the Great. Um, and most people will think of this as the Stonecutters episode. It is uh, season six, episode 12. And uh, to, in keeping, this is the one where, where Bart's chalkboard gag is adding just kidding, doesn't make it okay to insult the principal. Um, and, you know, we don't talk about Principal Skinner yet. And he doesn't appear in this episode, but he's one of my all-time favorites for other reasons. But this is the episode in which Homer is upset to find out that Lenny and Carl have a secret that they're not telling him. And that why are they getting these comfy chairs at the power plant? Why are they invited to these special parties and all this other sort of stuff? And um, he eventually, through the usual sequence of silly events, finds out that they belong to a secret society, the Stonecutters, which obviously is thinly veiled stonemasons. And it's, it's brilliantly conceived at their uh, headquarters where it's everybody, right? I guess it, it is Principal Skinner. It is, um, you know, Kent Brockelman. It's all the, the who's who. And Rush Limbaugh. Some, Rush Limbaugh is there. They, they, they actually, if you, if you slow down and look at who's all at that table, there's, there's some... There's the alien. There's a whole bunch of interesting yeah. characters, um, characters along there. But Homer wants badly to belong, not because um, he's interested in world domination or world power. He just wants the free beer and the bowling night. He wants to belong. The guy is lonely and he wants to be with his buddies. And so eventually it comes to, <laughs> it come to find out he's got the tattoo on his rear end that makes him the chosen one. And so they, they revere him and they elevate him and they bring him in and, and, they give him free beer and, and, and no matter what he does, he shoots pool and he rips the pool table and he's right, he gutter ball. No, no, that's a homer ball. That's a, that's a big win and all this stuff. And so everything is, is exactly the way he wants it. And yet it, 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 
tastes like ashes in his mouth, right? And something's missing. And Lisa, to your earlier point, as the, the know-it-all says, you need to use this power for good. And um, he says, wow, that's an interesting, what an interesting idea. He actually does it. He actually tries to marshal the, the stonecutters to be a force for, for social progress. Well, the rest of the stonecutters have no interest in that, right? And eventually they, they kick him out and they form their own club and all this stuff. And, and there's a variety. The ancient mystic yeah. society of no homers. No, yeah, homers. no homers, exactly, right? There are, there are <laughs> Which still has a homer in it because in his, in his flashback when Homer's thinking about like, oh, when he was a kid, there's like a no homers club. There's like the one homer. He's like, the hurt. We just can't have more than <laughs> we one. We can't have more than one. Yeah. And, the, and that guy's grown up is in this new one. He's still in the club. He's still in the club. There are, there are a variety. Of, there's a lot of, there's a lot going on to unpack in this episode. Um, and there are a couple of reasons that I love it. One is that it, it, it has... Uh, Mr. Burns as a lowly acolyte, and for some reason he has—he's late to the party. He's—he's he's only just fledged fairly recently, and and there's a point where he's kind of getting pushed around, like, "Yeah, you go get us some, some more drinks," and and he crawls away, and he says the most my favorite immortal line in the history of The Simpsons, which is, "Patience, Monty, climb the ladder." And here's a guy who's like 90 years old. He's going to climb the ladder. Okay, I get you, right? Uh, but I, I was in Rotary for a long time. And uh, the whole concept of, you know, the, the handshake and the, the trappings and you didn't have the robes, but like all this sort of stuff, right? And um, it lampoons that so, so thoroughly. But I think the reason that, that I enjoy it so much, setting aside the fact that Patrick Stewart is their great one, he's their, their leader. And, and you know, we talked about Leonard Nimoy, here's Patrick Stewart and what Patrick Stewart himself has called one of his two greatest appearances on American television, other than appearing on Sesame Street. He says this is one of his two best pieces of work on American television. And here we, we find that Homer is cast as a pro-social force. He is actually trying to do good work and Springfield won't let him. And we <laughs> see that from time to time in the series. We see that, that Homer has, if grudgingly, a moral compass. And he does try at times to do the right thing. But the, the, the context of the show and the conceit of the program and the nature of Springfield itself will not let him do that. And I, I, I find that the, there's this Sisyphusian quality to Homer that he's, he doesn't know he's pushing the bull up the hill, but he kind of is. And he doesn't want to. He just wants to eat donuts and drink beer and hang out. And yet somehow finds himself from time to time as, a, as an agent of positive force in, in, in the universe and it's it's pretty it's pretty hilarious the part that you just mentioned joe about you know homer's trying to get the stonecutters to actually do good works around town and they're like all like they're all just staring daggers at him while they're doing things that they ought to have been doing all along right and they're just like <laughs> exactly. son of a you know why are you making us do these why are we making leaves for people yeah. Yeah, yeah why are we doing things some of it ends up going horribly wrong anyway like they, there's one graffiti covered building they decided to repaint but they repaint it sky blue and a helicopter can't distinguish <laughs> it and crashed it into the side it's like okay that's pretty simpsons but that whole notion of like this group they have all this power right and they ought to be using it responsibly and they don't so when homer comes in and decides to act as a moral center they just hate him for it no good deed goes unpunished in the simpsons and it reminds me of another episode called they saved lisa's brain and it's one where lisa joins the springfield chapter of mensa it's like her comic book guy, Principal Skinner, like one other person. And they basically create this like super intelligent society that's going to run Springfield. And they start turning it into utopia. But people are just like, we hate you for it anyway. And they tear it all down, you know? That's what you see. Like grand designs to improve things are just 
rejected out of hand in Springfield. Like, no. Because Springfield is everywhere. Springfield is everywhere. I misspoke before. I said that Monorail was nominated for a primetime Emmy for Best Song. It wasn't, actually. It's We Do from this song, which is the Stonecutters theme. I was just say they, they've been nominated many times. Oh, had they really? Okay, well, I, songs, I, yeah. And won several, I think. Well, I know this one was definitely nominated. They probably won. It's, and it's hilarious. The lyrics of it are just... Who made Steve Gutenberg a star? We, we do. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Who, who controls the British crown? Who keeps the metric system down? We do. <laughs> we do. <laughs> who keeps the Landis off the maps? Who keeps the Martins under the Martians under wraps? We do. The Martians singing along. And the Martians okay. singing along. He's like at the table oh, yeah. singing like, ha It's just, it's just, it's just so good. It's, it's, it's so fantastic. We see this in a lot of Simpsons where they'll have this joke and then just cut away on a little comedic tangent just because they have an idea and they're going to run with it. And it's when <laughs> Homer's got like the big stonecutter book of history is like reading through and evokes a notion of that the way the Declaration of Independence was signed wasn't really as it is in the, in the history books. And they cut to what actually happened. And basically just the founding fathers sign it and then immediately throw this wildly destructive kegger and just like wreck the place, right? It's like, destroy, destroy the tavern where they signed it. It's like, shut up, fool. You know, it's going bonkers. Like, yeah, that's, you know, it's just, it's just so, it's, it's so wonderful. Like there's nothing sacred in the show at all. But you talk about the density of references, right? Like, you, know, you get the um, Raiders of the Lost Ark references in here, and Lost, yeah. and the Last Emperor. The Last, Last Emperor. Emperor. Right? Last Emperor. I, oh, when I saw God. this again, I, when I saw this again and watched the Last Emperor reference, I laughed my head off. It's just two seconds. Like again, blink and you miss it. But it's just so it's so literate. I mean, the show is it's just it's so attuned to Absolutely. what's what's going on. Like the high points of art get drawn into the show, whether they like it or not. And you know, for a long time, it was kind of hip for like the literati to sort of sneer at the Simpsons, right? And, and you had a lot of folks who kind of denigrated the show as the bottom of the barrel, you know, rising up somehow and, and spilling out. And, and you know, nobody liked to admit the fact that there's there's a bit of Springfield in every town in America, and nobody wants to acknowledge the Springfieldness of America. And I think you got a lot of people who really rankled when the show came around. And so it delighted me. You know, take things like a movie like The Last Emperor, which is like Oscar bait of the first order. And like, we're just going to put Homer in it just to make you watch it. It's <laughs> like, like, yes, please keep that up. That's so good. It's so irreverent. Like that is more irreverent than any clip of Bart saying, eat my shorts, right? Because that, that that's serious. That's a thumb in your eye to people in the real world. And it, it mattered and it's funny and it's great. And they never stopped doing that. Fantastic. Oh my God. Yeah, well, everybody loved to bash the show. You know, when it, I mean, how many comments did you hear about, oh, you know, it's an animation show and they don't have to pay actors and all that stuff. Like it was the one that was groundbreaking for that. And yeah. people love to look down on The Simpsons. Oh my God, it was awful for a while. And, you know, here it was, I was just faithfully watching every single week. And I'm like, this is the best, you know, that because of the animation, they could do so much of this stuff. And it, it was yeah. terrific. Well, you know, The Simpsons were a lot of things. It was overblown. It was, it was uncouth or whatever, but it, it never felt dishonest. And I think yeah. that, that, that went a long way. So when you had guys like George Herbert Walker Bush, you know, calling out the show, you know, I don't want to see an America like the Simpsons. I want to see more like the Waltons that practically helped put the Simpsons on the map because anybody who yeah. identified more of the Simpsons than the Waltons. And by that time, there were a lot of people they're like, mm, you know what? Okay. Boomer. I think <laughs> they were, <laughs> were going to enjoy fun. the show. So I mean, it's funny. I, I, you know, Chris was talking about how some of his Simpsons memories of working in, in, while he was in college. Again, we, this is a repeating theme, but I, I'm a little bit younger. I, the Simpsons aired, I think I was 14 or 15 when it first aired after the Super Bowl in 89 or 90 or whatever it was. And uh, in high school, it was, this was 
the equivalent of water cooler television that, you know, the next day people would be writing on the chalkboards, the stuff that, that Bart had written. And it, and it became the, so much because initially Bart was this thrust, right? There was this, um, you know, eat my shorts, man, like, you know, back off, man, this whole thing, like skateboarders and those, you know, skateboarders in my school love Bart Simpson and, and all this stuff because there was this thumb in the eye of, of authority that you're talking about. And that the show, even while Bart was only the, the nexus for a little while, it retained that heart of that counterculture and that, that you know, anti-authoritarianism vibe that um, continued to be a, um, a sort of an animating drive to the show for a long time. And that was what initially with kids, with us, kind of made it popular. And then we could laugh at our dad because Homer was our dad who didn't get our jokes and you know, eating mayonnaise out of the jar or whatever else. You, you couldn't not see it because it was going to be talked about the next day. and It was yeah. going to drive the uh, slang of the, you know, of the next week. Yeah. Well, I'd like to move on to the last moment of truth with just Tom's. Walk us through your moment of truth. I, I, you know, I love it because to me, it's sort of like plays like a, almost like a little bit of a joke on the viewer. And it goes back to a lot of the things that, you know, we've been talking about, about, you know, how uh, the slates wiped clean, you know, with every new episode, like, you know, Homer and gang managed to get into all these crazy sorts of things, yeah. you know, they're conveniently forgotten about by the next episode <laughs> so like you know, my moment of truth is this episode uh that they came up with to kind of address all that i think you know it's called homer's enemy and you know in the opening scene of it you're introduced to this guy frank grimes who is kind of like the antithesis of homer he's you know he's an orphan and he's had to work for everything he's like the epitome of overcoming adversity and of course that makes you know monty burns want to get him to you know be the executive vice president in uh he wants him for smithers job in the power plant uh and of course by the time smithers goes and gets him and brings him there he's conveniently forgotten about the guy and moved on to the next thing but which, uh, which yeah. is by the way a dog <laughs> Yeah, a dog. <laughs> it's a dog he sees on the news. <laughs> yeah, just another thing, you know, another distraction from Monty Burns. You know, so they bring this guy in and, you know, he, he's, he's sort of forced to work with Homer and, uh, you know, sees just how incompetent the guy is and, and really starts to take a disliking to him. And, you know, for part of the episode, it's kind of fair. You start to think about, wow, you know, like Homer really is kind of a numbskull. You know, how does he even still have a job? You know, they're showing graphs of like the number of meltdowns that have been involved since he, you know, uh, was a safety inspector at the plant. And it's just, you know, it's hilarious. Like this guy just grows so not fond of, of Homer over time that it really just begins to eat at him. So he, he, you know, eventually contrives this plan where he's going to enter Homer into this children's contest about, you know, designing a nuclear plant. And thus, everybody will make fun of him. Everybody will, uh, you know, see that he's the idiot, the incompetent idiot that he is. And like this, he starts to turn into this evil character. Like he's really hung up on this notion that, you know, Homer's a boob. And then, uh, I, you know, I can't believe he's still employed here. And, you know, of course, Homer gets into this contest, designs like a little diorama of a power plant. And, you know, everybody's watching this and the crowd of Lenny and Carl, like cheering him on and everything. And here's Frank Grimes trying to call attention to, oh, my God, you know, Homer's an idiot, everybody, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it goes over like a lead balloon. Everybody's like, yeah, so what? You know, that's our Homer. 
like, shut up, man. He's on his presentation. Let him do his thing. <laughs> Grimes launches into this whole thing, like, I'm Homer Simpson. Well, you know, and just goes into this complete, like, thing about how, you know, upset he is at, at Homer. And he <laughs> ends up grabbing, you know, like, two live electric lines. And the next scene is Reverend Lovejoy, you know, giving the eulogy over his grave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it just it, it was such a great episode because I'm, you know, I, he, he's sitting there. I think the real moment of truth for me is like when Grimes really gets worked up, ends up going to you know Homer really takes that to heart and he invites him for dinner at his house. And you know when Frank Grimes walks in, he sees it's like this place is a palace, and <laughs> he's walking around and show, Homer's showing him all the stuff that he did. He's like, "Here's me on tour with the Smashing Pumpkins. Here's me in space." <laughs> He loses his mind. It's so worked up and leaves and everything. It was just so perfect. And I'm like, you know, I I think the writers may have just had a little thing at our expense. You know, like when you when you look back at like all really Homer had done so many ridiculous things up until that point where you could have said, all right, you know, I, I realize all these sitcoms and everything, they're completely unbelievable, but like this is just, you know, it's off in the stratosphere. Yeah. And if you were to get hung up on that and you were to resent that, you, know, you would end up exactly <laughs> like Frank Grimes. It was just the perfect little yeah. joke and the perfect little episode that I just absolutely loved. <laughs> so dark. It's so dark. Yeah. Oh my it's... God. We were talking about the continuity of the show and this is, this is actually a, pretty cool thing you know he shows him these pictures of things that happened in former episodes you know again that, that's just at the convenience of the writers and those pictures are not on the wall in the next episode right yeah you know like <laughs> yeah. they 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 treat it as a story to the extent they they want to and 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 they have complete freedom to just pick it up and put it down and and that works pretty well yeah there are certain uh, ongoing gags. It, you know, it's always been it's my, been my lifelong dream to become a monorail conductor. Homer, you your lifelong dream was to eat the world's biggest hoagie, and you did that at the fair in 1977. <laughs> and that, that's just a gag that they've done a number of times. Yeah. And and again, you know, they change the lifelong dream every time on both yeah. sides. And I just <laughs> think it's lovely. It's just more of like a proof point. Like the, the guy's done everything. I mean, at this point, you know, in season eight, he hadn't yet, you know, fallen down the whole murder horn mountain or anything. But, you know, <laughs> he still had done some ridiculous things. It was just so funny. Oh, my God. This is actually, for me, a really pivotal episode. First of all, on its face, I think this, this episode is hilarious. I mean, I, I laugh hard at this episode. There's a great moment when, when Grimes is first kind of encountering Homer and Homer's like, you know, just, hey, new guys, like just bothering him. And all of a sudden, the lights start flashing in the room. They look and like, Homer, it's a 513. And Homer looks at his watch and goes, no, 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 in the manual. It's a, it's, a, it's like it's a code for an emergency. He's like, it's a 513. And Homer looks at his watch again. He goes, no, look, look at your panel. <laughs> like, it's like danger of melting. He goes, oh, hang on. And he goes in, he just takes a bucket of water, pours on the panel. That'll take care of it. <laughs> He's like, what? You know, it's, it's so it's so over the top. Meanwhile, the plant is still melting down, but we're just gonna walk away from that for a second. And there's a subplot in this this episode where where Bart Bart's wandering around town hall and manages to walk into this room and and happens to put a, a one dollar bid in on a property. It's got an old factory on it, so Bart buys an old abandoned factory for a dollar, and then he and Millhouse are running around it like all episode long which is just so hilarious because at one point, <laughs> one point he has, he, he tasks Millhouse with being like the night watchman. And so Millhouse is walking around, <laughs> twirling his nightstick going, he's like, so this is my life. 
well, at least I've done better than my dad. <laughs> right. Right. Everything's then, coming up Millhouse, right? And then <laughs> and then that night the whole that that night the warehouse falls down, right? And Barrett's like, oh man, where are the rats gonna live now? And you see them form this like massive torrent of rodent biomass, and it goes straight in into Moe's bar. <laughs> and you just hear Mo go, okay, everybody, tuck your pants into your socks. <laughs> like, okay, sure. Why not? That was such a delightful little subplot. Like the thing I loved about that too is like, you know, that all the trouble you could get in if you were a kid and you owned a factory, like yeah, right. It's gonna be good. You know, like oh, they yeah. stick themselves on the wheelie chairs and grab fire extinguishers. <laughs> yeah, and- right. You know, like shoot themselves across the factory. <laughs> like they get on top of this Ricky staircase that's obviously condemned, and they're going Shake Shack. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> it's like all the cool things you would have done, you know, like yeah. in an abandoned building or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Funny thing about that is that, like, that comes back during the scene when Grimes visits Homer in his home. He's like, "Oh yes, this is my son. He just oh, he just bought his first factory." It's like, <laughs> <laughs> It's the only time the family has assembled as these like uber winners, at least on the face of Potemkin village, but Grimes can't see it. He's already so round the bend. He's so pissed off that Homer is Homer that this is the final straw. Like, I can't believe this. And that's when Grimes turns into a supervillain, right? That's when he decides, all right, I'm not going to frame Homer and make him look like an idiot. And it's funny because like we're kind of laughing at Homer for the first half, but then we start laughing at Grimes. It tells us like it's worse to be a judgmental Grimes than it is to be a worthless Homer, right? Even at the end in his in his own funeral. Like Grimes is so hard luck that that Homer is sleeping through the eulogy of this guy's funeral. He goes, he wakes up like mine, change the channel. And everybody stops it, including Lovejoy. They all laugh and and Lay's like, that's a Homer. And like they forget that they're burying a townsperson. Like they just like kind of forget this guy. And they just pile on the insults too. <laughs> like yeah. grimy yeah, as he liked to be called. Grimy. <laughs> the nickname yeah. that Homer gave him that he couldn't stand. And he couldn't stand. Like that that nickname like that helped drive him into his into a psychotic fugue that killed there's, him. There's there's almost a, there's an aspect of this, and I said earlier that it's very dark. It's it's like the Seinfeld finale in a lot of ways. It highlights just how awful these people are, really. When you get right yeah. down to it, they're they're all terrible, terrible people. When you bring in someone who's not, you bring in someone who's who's like, oh, I'm going to work hard and I'm going to try to do the right thing and I'm going to do. And he enters this universe where none of that matters. He enters this universe where like hard work and meaning well are are not currency, and and he and it, and it destroys it. And it goes, it, to, to me, it's, it's indicative of the fact that, that Springfield, while it is everywhere, it's also, there is nowhere like this. <laughs> there is nowhere yeah, like Springfield. Yeah. This could not exist in real life. And it destroys any normal person that enters it because it's this black hole that you can't exist with it. And so it, it kills a normal person, essentially. It, it strips down, destroys, and kills a normal person. And then they laugh about it and move on with their yeah. lives. Which is why I, I that's really it funny. Finale. <laughs> right, because it's funny because of the darkness of it. You're like, it's them laughing in the jail cell at the end of time. I know we're yeah. not supposed to remember what we did. But it's like, it was really divisive because of, of you know, that, that finale was divisive because of that. Because it highlighted that these characters are ones that we laugh at them and we, we like them or whatever, but they're really not good people yeah but you know what though i'm going to challenge that a little bit because i think in those early in the early season i think up to this show a lot of them are not 
they're not conventionally good people, right? But they are, with the exception of certain characters who are in a villainous light, right? Like Burns is, is an obvious villain. Mo is a misanthrope. Barney's a drunk. I mean, yeah, right, yeah. But a lot of these characters are either just dumb or self-destructive. Any harm they're causing anybody else is because they're just accidentally bumping into each other as they're doing more harm to themselves. There's not a lot of malice in anything. There are a lot of people, a lot of fans of the show who feel that there's this notion of jerk-ass Homer, that Homer shifts as a character kind of right around this episode, which is like before he's just a, an idiot bumbling through life and we're laughing because he can't see the force of the trees. Like there's like one of my favorite moments is, I forget what episode it's in, but you know, the Simpsons are always hard up for money. Marge is kind of explaining how they're going to have to cut back on their grocery bill. Uh, you know, yeah, you know, save, save money. He goes, so what do I have for dinner? And he goes, mm, steak? Uh, I don't know if we can afford that. Mm, steak? <laughs> Like he's just like like he's a toddler, you know. He just he just doesn't think that 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 might be hurtful to somebody. But after this episode, he starts doing things and saying things that are clearly meant to come at somebody's expense, right? They're not just him being an idiot, and whether it does or it doesn't hurt somebody is irrelevant because he can't appreciate the blowback of his activities. He starts doing things that are more callous afterwards, and I kind of wonder if the show loses something when it goes down that route. You know, the strange thing about The Simpsons is that. As I was saying before, it began as a piece of truly subversive humor, and it turned into a brilliant broadside against mainstream American culture, and then somewhere along the line became part of the American scenery. And the big question with The Simpsons now is, well, when does this show end, right? It's, it's a question a lot of viewers have asked recently. It's a decent question. I mean, since the show came out, overall television ratings in general have declined by about 50% as people have started doing other things rather than simply watching mainstream TV. But even by that benchmark, The Simpsons has gone down by 80% since it's halcyon early days. Now, it still draws in a couple million viewers each week, which and that's incredible. That's just incredible. It is. But still, a lot of people feel the show has kind of jumped the shark and maybe should be put away for good. Now, that won't happen for at least another few years because uh, the show was recently renewed for, I think, another two seasons. But someday, the show will eventually come to an end, right? How it ends and when are almost besides the point at this stage, I'd say. Everyone has that episode at which they decided to stop watching the show, or they just stopped and didn't realize that it was going to be the last episode they saw. And everybody has that last great episode in mind, or at least the one that made them decide the show is no longer for them. Either way, this is a show that has seen legions of people arrive, stay, and leave, all while it has kept turning on. It's almost like the Springfield nuclear plant itself. You know, its employees may come and go, but the plant is eternal. Hmm, eternal. It's time to wrap the show. So, uh, guys, thank you very much for, for being with me tonight. Uh, Chris, Tom, and Joe, thank you very much for this jaunt through Springfield. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you next time here on Moments of Truth. Bye now. What about the uh, favorite side character? All right, fine. <laughs> Bonus, speed around. Like, you've got 30 seconds. Joe, favorite side character and why? Uh, my uh, my uh, favorite character would be Maya Quimby. For reasons <laughs> that should be obvious. Say chowder. <laughs> Chris? Hi, I'm Troy McClure. You may remember me from such educational films as 2 minus 3 equals negative fun and Firecrackers, the silent killer. <laughs> Tom? I got so many favorites, but I, I got to go with Ralph Wiggum. <laughs> smells like cat food. <laughs> What's a diorama? <laughs> I'm kidding. Oh, <laughs> I, 
think I think it's got to be for me Mo Sislak, just because just hearing Bart call him over the phone and torment him um, was just one of the highlights of the show. And I just I just loved how more insanely angry and violent he would get. He was one of the truly dark characters of the show, and I loved him for it. it Why so- can't I find Amanda hug and kiss? <laughs> Amanda hug and kiss. Why can't I find Amanda hug and kiss? <laughs> hey everybody, IP freely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It was so good. It was so good. All right, guys. Thank you very much. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com.